Good afternoon and a very warm welcome to today's Paris Live on Radio France International. It's Wednesday the 1st of April and you'll be with myself, Olia Horton, over the next hour with news and features from France and around the world. As you know, our programs at the moment are a little bit different in line with recommended measures to combat the spread of coronavirus. RFI has been making a few changes to the way we're working here in the studio so we don't have any live guests at the moment. Uh, but do bear with us. Our website, of course, is operating as usual so you can find all the updates there and also explore uh, our various features and our YouTube channel. Now coming up over the next hour we will have an overview of the situation with coronavirus here in France and Europe uh, with our correspondents on the line from different parts of the world. We'll be having a little look at the French press later on. A reminder too that Paris Live is broadcast Mondays to Fridays at 1300 hours GMT. We have crossed over to summertime now here in Paris, uh, although we're prog our programs are still going to air at the same time, so that makes it 1300 hours GMT. And if you missed our program, we're online, uh, rfienglish.com. Do stay with us. The heads of three global agencies have warned of the risk of a worldwide food shortage if the coronavirus crisis isn't effectively tackled. Now, for a little bit of an overview on how the situation is being handled uh, in several countries across the world, I'm joined in the studio by Paul Myers, who's been uh, having a look at what is going on, and in particular, this particular story coming out of the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization. That's right, Olya. The uh, chiefs at the uh, UN's Food and Agriculture Organization Organization, the World Health Organization and the World Trade Organization say the uncertainty over food could uh, lead to fewer exports, uh, which create shortages. And of course, when there are shortages, you get the panic buying that mm. uh, we've, we've already seen, seen in, we? in mm -hmm. so many places. The other risk is that confinement and travel restrictions are hampering agricultural and food industry workers. Uh, foods are also going to waste on borders, as it's obviously taking much more time to get through customs. And uh, of course, uh, those are just a few of the, the logistical problems for leaders throughout the world. Uh, they're also having to deal with the rising numbers of deaths from the coronavirus. It stands at 43,000 uh, with 865,000 confirmed cases in 186 countries and uh, here in France there have been just over three and a half thousand deaths. Now uh, Paul it appears that uh, authorities uh, well here in France and probably elsewhere are vowing to get tougher on people who are trying to flout the lockdown and confinement rules. Well obviously there are going to be so many reasons for doing so but uh, they're showing they are going to be tough. A uh, man has been jailed for repeatedly violating the lockdown rules. Uh, a court in Calais uh, in northern France sentenced uh, the 20-year-old to two months in prison after he was caught eight times without the special document uh, which all residents are required to show if they leave the house. Now, you can leave uh, if to do your essential shopping or go to the doctor, walk the dog, go to the chemist, a bit of exercise and, of course, uh, come to work. Uh, but uh, so... 
we've seen in Paris so far um, a man's been sentenced, a 22-year-old man's been sentenced to 105 hours of community service for repeatedly violating those lockdown orders. Now, the Interior Minister, Christophe Castaner, has said that uh, nearly 6 million checks have been carried out uh, since the lockdown started on March the 17th. There have been 360,000 fines. So that shows Mm. the the gravity of the situation and just how seriously the authorities are taking this. And um, Castaner, I don't think he's going to make himself very popular here. He -hmm. said that uh, families should really forget about any plans they might have been harbouring for the school holidays, which uh, begin at the end of the week for some parts of France. um, Because he's promised that any unwarranted movement will be punished uh, because the country is trying to evacuate dozens of uh, critically ill patients from hospitals in areas where the services are obviously overstretched. Now, the Ile-de-France region, which uh, has Paris at its core, uh, saw its first evacuations on Wednesday. Um, Of course, the outbreak of the coronavirus uh, really took hold in the east of France. Uh, But uh, 24 patients have been sent from Paris to Brittany in northern France. Uh, They went on a high-speed train, which has been fully equipped as a hospital on the tracks and uh, another 12 patients are going to follow on a second train later on uh, Wednesday. Um, The uh, reports are showing that a third of the uh, nearly 500 deaths registered in France in the last 24 hours have been in the Ile-de-France region. And um, there is controversy around all this as well, because here in France at the moment, only deaths in hospitals are counted towards the official tally. So obviously this excludes uh, people who are dying in old age facilities Mm. or at home. And uh, there's going to be some discrepancy over the actual death uh, toll and Mm. the and the uh, figures which the government is sending out. And um, obviously not yet as bad here in France as it is in Italy, where the toll, the death toll, is creeping towards 13,000 and um, just over 9,000 deaths in uh, neighbouring Spain. Uh, In the United States uh, so far, they've, uh, well, registered 4,081 deaths. And at his uh, daily press conference, uh, President Donald Trump said the US in, USA was in for a very rough ride. I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. We're going to go through a very tough two weeks. And then hopefully, as the experts are predicting, as I think a lot of us are predicting after having studied it so hard, you're going to start seeing some real light at the end of the tunnel. But this is going to be a very painful very, very painful two weeks. Well, Trump was at the press conference with his advisers, Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks. Uh, Burks said the models had showed that between 100 and 200,000 people could die in the United States. But Fauci said it could be much lower if people followed the advice. We don't accept that number that that's what's going to be. So what we're going to see, and that's we've got to brace ourselves in the next several days to a week or so, we're going to continue to see things go up. We cannot be discouraged by that. We do everything we can to get it even significantly below that. So, you know, I don't want it to be a mixed message. This is the thing that we need to anticipate, but that doesn't mean that that's what we're going to accept. We want to do much, much better than that because the mitigation is actually working and will work. 
And that was Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He's one of uh, President Trump's advisors. Now, we're going to lighten the mood a bit because we've got a quirky tale from New Zealand uh, where police have urged thieves who stole a coronavirus testing tent to get themselves tested. Um, <laughs> the tent was stolen outside a hospital in Auckland. It had been set up overnight and... Uh, Hospital workers arrived in the morning to find that the tent had gone. And um, so the police have taken to YouTube to send out a message and say, look, if you know where it is, just give us a call. Tell us where it is. And actually, you should get yourselves tested <laughs> because um, it's been dealing with um, it's supposed to be dealing with um, people yeah, who've got the disease. Contaminated. So Indeed. that's a slightly quirky take on um, miscreants. Mm. And um, Senegal's uh, recorded its first death from the virus. It was Papa Diouf, the former president of Olympic Marseille Football Club. He was 68. He died in a hospital in Dakar. And there'll be more on that particular story a bit later in the sports. All right. Thank you very much for Paul Myers for that overview on the coronavirus situation. Correspondence call. In Germany, the government has voted a series of measures to try and keep the economy afloat during the coronavirus crisis, both for companies and for independent workers. But a recession is still in sight. We'll go through some of these measures with our correspondent Emmanuel Schatz, who joins me now on the line from Berlin. Emmanuel, thank you very much for speaking to RFI today. So walk us through some of these measures that have been voted by the German parliament. Yes, last week the Parliament met, uh, and of course the recession seems uh, unavoidable at this stage. So measures have been taken to try and help out the German industry and businesses. In total, it is more than a thousand and a hundred billion euros that have been voted in various measures uh, to support them. So, on top of centralising some supply chains, setting prices on medical supplies, for example, financially, it's more than four hundred billion euros that will serve to cover companies' debts. Another another. 100 billion euros uh, will go to loans to the companies in need and uh, then 100 billion euros will be wired into the German public investment fund. Those are the main financial measures. Those subsidies are from the government to uh, the German industry. What's uh, remarkable in that, in that vote is that it took place uh, last week at a moment where Germany renounced to its uh, policy of Schwarze Null, which is written in the German constitution and which in fact forbids the government to contract any debt and put the country in deficit. So this uh, had been adopted in 2009 and Germany had reached the zero deficit goal in 2014. So that's the first time uh, that this will no longer be compulsory given the extraordinary circumstances of this crisis. Now some of those measures were directly aimed at independent workers and small businesses. What could you tell us about that? Yes, a special fund for freelancers, independent workers, small cultural businesses has been voted uh, for the city of Berlin, for example, and an application portal has been set last week and opened last Friday. And in fact, many people in the German capital were dreading the effect of the sanitary crisis on their businesses, bookshops that can no longer open, concerts being cancelled, therefore uh, artists uh, not getting gigs anymore, not to mention restaurants and cafes which are closing. Well, 
Within four days only, that worry was taken away for some by the Berlin Investment Bank. So, uh, people uh, concerned just had to give their name, their tax number, banking details, and a legal document uh, proving the name of their company. And on Tuesday, some had already been wired a sum between five and 14,000 euros to cover their rents and bills for the next three months. And in total, 500 million euros were distributed in support uh, of small businesses and independent workers of Indo-German capital alone, and already five, uh, 50,000 businesses uh, have successfully applied to this scheme. So is that German efficiency affecting all sectors? Well, that was for the cultural sector, and financial support will, of course, also be provided for the agricultural sector, for example. Mm. Uh, but one issue beyond the financial uh, aid is that usually people working in the fields uh, come from abroad and they can no longer reach Germany. So that's problematic for the harvest. It's also problematic if we look at the health sector. Right now, Germany still has bad capacities in its hospitals tackle the COVID-19 crisis. However, it does lack medical personnel and in normal times it would recruit abroad and that's not something that's easily doable nowadays. So uh, finally uh, Germany is showing solidarity for its own businesses and workers but it sets another tone at a European level is that right? Exactly. Something that is much debated uh, here in Germany uh, is that the country, uh, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel has refused uh, to show European solidarity in the form of Eurobonds, um, for example. It had already done so during the 2008 uh, crisis, and Angela Merkel again is against the so-called Corona bonds, something that has been uh, advocated for by Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez in Spain and supported by French President Emmanuel and Macron and also by Italy. And uh, there, um, there's, an, there's an article in the European Union Treaty uh, that is a non-assistant clause, but uh, France, Italy, Spain, Portugal would like to lift up uh, this uh, clause so as to uh, be able uh, to allow the community to borrow together. And for the moment, uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel is still against it, even if economists including German economists, say that it would actually bring a European member states closer together at this time of crisis. Mm. Well, thank you very much uh, for bringing us up to date with the situation there in Germany. That was Emmanuel Schaz on the line from uh, Berlin. Correspondence calls. Turning to India, a nationwide tracking effort is underway to identify, quarantine and test all people who attended a gathering of almost 4,000 people belonging to a Muslim missionary group who also came from abroad, including Malaysia and Saudi Arabia. All of them attended a religious event in the capital in mid-March that has set off several COVID-19 clusters. The area in New Delhi, in New Delhi has emerged as a coronavirus hotspot and has been put under a strict lockdown after 18 people present at the event tested positive, uh, 50 in the southern state of Tamil Nadu and five died in another state. Health officials say it was imperative to identify them as soon as possible uh, to avoid being overwhelmed by a surge of cases given the quick spread of the virus. The number of positive cases in India is well over 1,600 and the death toll has reached 38. For more on the situation in India, I'm joined on the line by our correspondent Murali Krishnan. Murali, thank you very much for speaking to RFI today. What was this religious event that was held in Delhi and why has it caused so much panic? Well, the Tablighi Jamaat is a Deobandi 
Sunni Muslim missionary movement uh, that preaches worldwide. And thousands of people from across India and some from countries like Malaysia and Indonesia had visited the headquarters of this uh, Muslim missionary movement late last month, participating in prayer sessions and lectures over several days. When, uh, with no public transportation and all movements stopped because of the nationwide lockdown, thousands of people had been stranded inside the center's dormitories after the meeting ended, uh, while others had left the city. Uh, and therefore, so far around 2,335 people have been taken out of the Tablighi Center and its mosque over a 36-hour period that ended today, just today. And there have been, there have been some uh, sent to quarantine centers, and others who showed symptoms are in hospitals. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the mysterious part is even overseas visitors. Some of them preachers traveled to other parts of the country where they stayed in local mosques and met people. And some members were from Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, Nepal. And for now in India, at least six regions have reported cases that can be directly traced to the congregation of the mosque. Have the authorities made any headway in tracing the participants? What what has become very clear right now, uh, it's believed that the infections were caused by some preachers who came in from Indonesia. And uh, and medical officials are having a really tough time now finding out how many people attended the event or where they went. But they've already begun to trace and test. Uh, it's uh, What's unclear is that the, whether the event was ticketed or even if the organizers maintained a roster of visitors as people attended the event throughout, with, with some staying and on and others leaving. Uh, but look what has emerged. The southern state of Telangana, it reported six people have died. And the state's medical officer says that 40 of the state's 71 cases were either directly or indirectly linked to it. India administered Kashmir, it reported its first death. And 40 of the region's 48 cases could be tracked to just to that one patient. And the southern states of Tamil Nadu, Telangana, all Andhra Pradesh, they've had more than 3,000 people from these states attend the event. So the search is on. It's going to be tough and a really tough one. Now, there has been a lot of criticism of this event. What have the organisers said? Well, the organizers right now deny accusations it had broken social distancing laws. Uh, they're saying it, it was forced to accommodate visitors stranded by the lockdown, uh, especially after the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced it on March 24th, 24, and they had just four hours' notice. And in a press statement today, uh, the group said the rumor started gaining ground across social media that allegedly people affected with COVID-19 are present in the mosque. And that was being circulated that certain deaths had also occurred. And they said under such compelling circumstances, there was no option for them but to accommodate the stranded visitors with prescribed medical precautions within, the, uh, uh, within, the, within their own premises. On social media, there's been a lot of criticism about the organizers and many demanding action against them. Actually, there's been a lot of Muslim bashing. But this is not the first time that religious congregations have been blamed for the spread of coronavirus. Uh, Similar events have been held in Indonesia and Malaysia. And in South Korea, uh, many positive cases were linked to the Shion Chiyoji Church. That was a secretive religious sex. A sect that has been since apologized for its role in the outbreak, but therefore the there has this thing this this issue will a controversy will be discussed for many days right now, and especially if the contagion spreads.
Thank you very much for joining us on the program today. That was our correspondent Murali Krishnan there on the line from New Delhi. Commission Chief of the EU, Ursula von der Leyen, has warned that the coronavirus emergency measures by EU countries must be, in her words, limited. This after Hungary's nationalist leader, Viktor Orban, took on sweeping powers. Democracy cannot work without free and independent media, von der Leyen said in a statement. She didn't name Hungary, but it was nevertheless to be seen as a rebuke to Orban's adoption of rule by decree. RFI's Jan van der Mader spoke to Hungarian scholar Andras Rat, who works as a senior research fellow with the Berlin-based German Council on Foreign Relations, and asked him if Hungary's way of dealing with the coronavirus came as a surprise. The draft law itself, when it was submitted uh, back in mid-March, of course, it was a surprising one, particularly because of the really wide powers it gave to the government. But the voting itself, no, it was not a surprise. You are Hungarian yourself. How does it make you feel, this kind of regulations, this kind of restrictions? Well, it's. Uh, I'm not only Hungarian, <laughs> I'm also a scholar. And from the scholarly perspective, Right now, we do not know for fact whether the government is going to misuse these powers. On the other hand, so wide, extraordinary powers are absolutely unprecedented in Europe. Of course, a number of European countries have introduced various forms of state of emergency in connection with the coronavirus crisis. However, Hungary is the only country which has been widening the existing constitutional framework of a state of emergency while the given extraordinary legal regime is actually in place. So how specifically do these regulations uh, curb the freedoms the uh, Hungarians had before? In the state of when this special legal regime, so-called state of danger, the government can rule by decrees. The government can rule without the parliament. What does this very special law do, the law adopted on Monday, This law abolishes the 15 days validity deadline. So from now on, the government can rule by decrees, and these decrees remain valid for an indefinite period of time. Yes, the government every time can decide that, okay, emergency is over, so decrees lose that validity, decrees come out of force, they go back to normalcy. However, is the automatic going back to normalcy, which was there with the 15 days deadline, this is no gun. So theoretically, from Monday on to Tuesday on, because the, the law came into force on Tuesday, so from Tuesday on, 31st of March, the Hungarian government can rule by decrees, and these decrees remain in force until the government decides otherwise. So can we then now say that Europe has its first dictatorship? Not yet. We don't know for fact how the government is going to use this power. Having extraordinary legal regime in place in an emergency situation or in a disaster situation is not unprecedented. It's more or less normal. This very special Hungarian regime is quite particular. However, so far... We have not seen a single case that the government would have actually misused these powers. We just don't know how they might use it. We do not have Europe's first dictatorship. 
we have a situation which has the potential to develop into that direction. If it so happens that the government slowly, creepingly starts to abuse its powers, what means does the EU in Brussels then have to counter these effects? The European Union has already the Article 7 procedure in place because if in a member state fundamental democratic rights and structures get endangered, this violates the Article 7 of the Treaty of the European Union. So the Article 7 procedure is always a good way to monitor. Personally, I think that at this point, at this so early stage, when we do not know yet whether at all the Hungarian government is going to misuse these powers or not at all, I think what the EU should do, both the Council and the Commission, is first to state firmly that extraordinary legal measures shall be in place only for the duration that is necessitated by countering the virus, and also state that civil rights, democratic rights, cannot and shall not be curtailed any longer or to any larger extent that it is absolutely necessary for countering the virus. Today is April 1, Fool's Day. How do these new regulations affect the people making jokes about the coronavirus? Of course, we have a lot of memes about the coronavirus. The whole internet is full of memes, English language internet, Russian language internet, Hungarian language internet. This actually helps, I mean, memes and humor helps a lot, both helps a lot of people both to endure the, the measures necessary because of the lock-in or lockdown and also in order to prepare for, uh, for a situation that might possibly get a lot worse when the virus spreads even more. So far, Hungary has been faring relatively well compared to, 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 to many other European countries. The number of infected is just around 500, with fatalities, fortunately, yet a lot less than, than let's say, in Italy. However, all experts keep warning that the worst is, is yet to come. So humor and memes and joking, it helps people endure the stress or cope with the stress that was uh, Andras Rast, a senior research fellow with the Berlin-based German Council on Foreign Relations, speaking to RFI's Jan van der Waal. Now it's time to see if our press reviewer, Michael Fitzpatrick, has managed to dig up anything interesting in today's newspapers. Now he joins me on the line from his home in the Paris suburbs. Uh, welcome to the program, Michael. Are you awake? <laughs> yes, he's there. Good. Now, what is on the menu today? Uh, hi, Alia. Good afternoon, listeners. Well, what would you say to a bit of silence? You're kidding me, Michael. But if you think we're gonna, you're going to get away with having silence on the radio for the next two minutes, you've got another thing coming. Oh, well, <laughs> no, this, this isn't a, a Fitzpatrick effort to avoid doing any work. The fact is that just like the wild animals which have been spotted in our suddenly deserted cities, this health crisis, which has forced an estimated 3 billion human beings to stop galloping around at a fierce rate, has also resulted in a dramatic reduction of the amount of noise we produce. Indeed. There are few airports operating and very few flights of those that have remained open. 
There are relatively few cars and practically no traffic jams, fewer trains and metros, fewer building sites. And since bars and restaurants remain closed, there are no noisy gatherings under our windows at closing time each evening. So apart from the tragically frequent sound of ambulances transporting people to hospital, those of us who live in and around cities are left with a sonic environment which is perhaps not unlike that experienced by our pre-industrial relatives. Now, I suppose we quickly forget what things used to be like, but is Paris a particularly noisy place at the worst of times? Uh, It really is. 90% of those of us who live in the Paris region are routinely subjected to a noise level which exceeds the recommended maximum. There are 150 microphones in various places in the capital and its surroundings, and their job is to continuously monitor the amount of noise we generate The evidence is, I'm afraid, deafening. Noise levels are down dramatically from their normal, which is dangerously high. Now you can clearly hear your (laughs) neighbours shouting at one another. Their dog can wake you with a bark at 4am and the rustling leaves and the demented joyous singing of the birds in the tree in the same neighbour's garden will make sure you don't get back to sleep before noon. (laughs) That's right, the uh, sounds of spring have uh, definitely sprung upon us. Now noise is annoying but but does too much of it have a direct impact on the health of the average city dweller? Very definitely, yes. Apart from disrupting sleep patterns, overexposure to noise boosts your risk of a heart attack, it damages your hearing, forces up your blood pressure, and all of that results in an average shortening of life expectancy by 11 months for the city inhabitant who is otherwise in good health. And if you live near an airport, you can knock a whopping three years off your life expectancy. Wow. So the current quiet adds up to an increased quantity and quality of life. I imagine that the people who measure air pollution levels are also finding a similar situation. Absolutely, yes. If anything, the improvement in atmospheric quality over Paris is even more dramatic than the impact on the soundtrack. The experts who monitor the noise and pollution levels accept, of course, that the current situation can't last forever. That would mean complete economic close-down. But they are hoping that this pause will make more of us conscious of just how noisy and smelly our daily lives have been. And they have the additional hope that we might take personal and political action in the future when the bark of the neighbour's husband has once again been (laughs) swallowed up by the sounds of the city. Well, let's hope. Well, thank you very much to uh, Michael Fitzpatrick for joining me on Paris Live for that look at the sound of silence. Thank you, Michael. (laughs) Thanks. I turn my collar to the cold and damp When my eyes were stabbed by the flash of a neon light Split the night and touch the sound of silence. Ah, France. We have food and wine, of course. And strikes and protests. There's art and haute couture. And those stripy t-shirts. But it's so much more. And we want to tell you about it. If you're interested in France, let us be your ears and eyes on the ground. We'll take you beyond the baguette to hear from the people who make France what it is and who want to change it to give you a fuller picture of this country at the heart of Europe. Find us on Spotlight on France, a weekly podcast from Radio France International on RFIEnglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. RFI, Radio France International.
Well, it's Wednesday the 1st of April and thank you for tuning into Paris Live if you're just joining us. So we're at the halfway mark of our hour-long show today, bringing you some news and features from France and around the world. And as you know, our programs are a little bit different at the moment. We've had to make a few changes to the way we're working in line with recommended measures to combat the spread of the coronavirus. So it's a little bit star- less staff than usual. But do bear with us. And uh, we're also uh, pumping our website full of lots of new information. Do check it out, RFI english.com and uh, why not explore our other pages such as the podcasts and our youtube channel and if you'd like to get in touch with us we're on social media on twitter and facebook now still to come we'll be having some sports news a little bit later on and we'll hear why tintin drawings by the belgian artist Hershey still fetch record prices at auctions around the world and we'll discover the dark side of the amazon rainforest with photographer tomaso proti do stay with us Correspondence call. The Zambezi River is rising to historic levels, creating a spectacular sight at the Victoria Falls. But COVID-19 will ensure that only a few will get to witness it. Officials say the flow of water in the Zambezi is more than 600% higher than this time last year. Residents of the resort town of Victoria Falls have shared pictures of the raging waterfall on social media, which has now been closed to tourists. Earlier, I spoke to our Zimbabwe correspondent, Ryan Truscott, and I began by asking him to describe what the falls look like at the moment. Well, videos have been shared on social media over the the last couple of days and they show an unbroken wall of water surging over the falls. Um, Last November, by comparison, you may remember that at the height of the drought, half of the falls had dried up and several media organisations linked that to climate change, which annoyed local tour operators and residents because they say there's a seasonal fluctuation at the falls and the Zambian site always dries up. But now there's no sign of any bare rock faces, just this unbroken raging torrent uh, with huge billowing clouds of spray. Uh, there are currently more than 4,000 cubic meters of water per second that are said to be flowing over the falls. If you compare that to the average flow of the, the Seine River in Paris, which is 280 cubic meters a second. It gives you an idea of the kind of volumes of water that we're talking about. Um, we've had reports today that the the sound of the waterfall can be heard from Victoria Falls Airport, which is 20 kilometers away. And I was speaking to one resident who lives four kilometers from the falls, and he says the, the windows in his house are actually rattling from the power of this falling water. He says you can actually feel the ground move beneath your your feet, which is why many of the houses in Victoria Falls have cracks in their walls. So it's certainly living up to its reputation uh, as the smoke that thunders. Well, it does certainly sound like an awesome spectacle, but unfortunately there aren't any tourists there to witness it, are there? Yeah, that's right. Uh, The the Zimbabwe National Parks Authority says the um, Victoria Falls usually gets up to 1,000 visitors a day. That number had dwindled to fewer than 10 per day. And on Monday, they actually closed access to the Victoria Falls. It's part of a a 21-day lockdown that started on Monday to fight the spread of coronavirus. Uh, A number of hotels and lodges had already closed down in recent days uh, because of the effects on tourism that the pandemic is having. Uh, One chain, Africa Albida Tourism, which runs the iconic Victoria Falls Safari Lodges, has shut its facilities in the town until July. So tourism is taking a big hit uh, from COVID-19 and tourism is an important foreign currency earner for Zimbabwe and, and Victoria Falls has always been 
the jewel in its tourism crown, so to speak. But but right now, only the town's residents will be seeing and hearing this this amazing spectacle. So, Ryan, will the rising of the Zambezi River help to solve some of Zimbabwe's electricity shortages? Uh, yes. I mean, power cuts of up to 18 hours a day have been the norm here for almost a year. Uh, although I must say that the government is now, during this, this public health crisis and lockdown, they're trying to ensure homes get uninterrupted power. Zimbabwe's main source of power is the Kariba hydropower station, which is on the Zambezi River. It's around 500 kilometers downstream of Victoria Falls. And last year, at the height of the drought, there were fears it would have to shut down because water levels were dropping so low. Now it's expected that given this huge amount of water in the Zambezi River, the dam will be able to generate significant amounts of power. There's even predictions it could could fill and that water levels will exceed those last recorded in 1978. So this could all be a, a once-in-a-generation occurrence. It's just ironic that so few people will be able to witness it. That was our Zimbabwe correspondent Ryan Truscott there. Paris Live. Turning now to the world of nature as seen through the eyes of a photographer, the Italian photographer Tommaso Proti won the 10th Carmagnac Photojournalism Award at the end of last year with his black and white series Amazonia, Life and Death in the Brazilian Rainforest. Tommaso Proti started his project back in January of last year, accompanied with British journalist Sam Cowie, and for seven months they documented life in modern-day Brazilian Amazon. Proti's work shows, however, a harsh reality where social and humanitarian crises overlap with the Destruction of the tropical forest. He explained to RFI's Isabel Martinetti how he discovered the region in the first place. I started uh, the project uh, five years ago. The first time I went there was uh, on assignment to do a story about the environmental impacts of the Belo Monte Dam construction. That time I ended up spending more time in Altamira, the city near the, the dam, rather than in the forest. So I ended up documenting more the social than the environmental impacts. And I, it was the first time in the Amazon and, um, and I saw and I kind of uh, understood like a totally different vision uh, of, the, of the region from the one I had. I started working also on... Um, on different stories together with a journalist, a British journalist that is um, Sam Cowie, is a correspondent for mainly The Guardian. And with him, I, at a certain point, after I've collected um, a, a wide range of um, of topics, so we uh, we thought that um, that one was going to be a long-term project that we wanted to offer like a different uh, vision. Uh, and perception of the Amazon. So we are just to, to focus on on the hidden crisis, on the urban centers. Uh, for instance, we documented the, the the in general the violence taking place all around the region, from uh, related with drug trafficking to land conflict, uh, land grabbing, and violence against the indigenous uh, communities. And I read that uh, you heard um, the Brazilian President Bolsonaro saying that indigenous people um, were in a zoo, like in a zoo. Could you tell me exactly what you heard and what what, ha- what happened then for you? Yeah, actually, um, I heard this phrase. Uh, it was in uh, on November 2018. I I, I just received the the Carmignac, uh, Award. 
and I was already on uh, on the ground in the field in uh, Marabam, in the south of, of the state of Para. I remember that day, I don't remember the exactly day, but I remember that uh, the, the news were talking about this quote of Bolsonaro saying that the indigenous uh, uh, tribes uh, were like uh, animals uh, inside the zoo and that like uh, they, they, their reserves should be reduced. That was like, you know, the proof that in a certain way everything he said before the election was going to be true and he was going to persecute like uh, an um, and continue um, a politics based on uh, exploitation. In, in fact, his message has always been uh, the Amazon has to be open to business and uh, neglecting in a certain way that we are experiencing uh, like a, a climate collapse and instead claiming that, uh, that there is uh, enough forest, there's a plenty of forest for everybody and uh, that we sure know worry about uh, the consequences. And so um, I saw the series here uh, exhibited here at the Maison Européenne de la Photographie. It's in black and white. Why black and white? Because since I started working in Amazon, I started working in black and white. Black and white is also the best way I express myself with photography. It's my main visual language with, with photography. And uh, as I I put together this variety of, uh, of topics. Uh, the black and whites allows me, allowed me to, to keep uh, visual currents and kind of, uh, you know, even if, uh, you know, th there are different stories inside the project, uh, the black and white in a certain ways uh, permits to make them to be a one body of work. And also, and also, I think like uh, it helps uh, you know to raise this idea of uh, you know um, a dark Amazon, a dark side of the Amazon, and talk more about the violence. That was Italian photographer Tommaso Proti speaking to Arfa's Isabel Martinetti. Paris Live. Staying with culture. Looking now at uh, Tintin, the success of Tintin around the world. The cartoon journalist Tintin has been solving mysteries and bamboozling the bad guys since 1929. Now, there's no mystery about the enduring appeal of the cartoon character or the original artwork for the comic books drawn by Belgian artist Hergé. Fans of The Boy Reporter love the drawings for their simplicity of line, their energy and, of course, their humour. But the originals also attract record prices at art auctions. Denanji Kadilka went along to the Paris branch of Christie's Auction House in December but to find out more. The art of Hergé, creator of the cartoon figure Tintin, remains popular not only with readers, but also with collectors. This was underlined at a recent auction sale of comic book drawings at Christie's in Paris. An original artwork from the cartoon adventure King Ottokar's Scepter, which was made in 1938 by the Belgian cartoonist, fetched 394,000 euros. The drawing in Indian ink and blue watercolor features Tintin and his dog Snowy retrieving the scepter from the hands of thugs. He always was popular. The prices are increasing since uh, 20 years and it's not finished because he was an avant-gardiste of the art that's known as comics art. 
That was Alain Uberti, director of Paris-based Uberti and Bren Gallery, which partnered with Christie's for this auction. Three other Hergé drawings were sold at the auction. An illustration made in 1943 showing Tintin carrying a model of the unicorn accompanied by Snowy was sold for 81,250 euros, well beyond the estimate 50,000 to 55,000 euros. A drawing from 1951 for Tintin and the Land of Black Gold was sold for 62,500 euros, a little above its estimated price of between 50,000 to 60,000 euros. But some other Hergé drawings that were up for sale didn't find any buyers. A drawing inspired by the secret of the unicorn for a wooden puzzle which was estimated between 150,000 to 180,000 euros remained unsold. Another drawing that wasn't sold was from 1935 that had an estimated price between 120,000 and 150,000 euros. The auction also featured drawings by other artists like Albert Uderzo and Jacques Martin. Christie's Paris managing director Julia Pradels said that the comic book auction is different from other sales in many regards. In a sense, it's a bit different just because of the material itself. Just a, a comic book or a flat drawing is easier to store, to move and to uh, exhibit than a furniture or a large painting canvas from an impressionist modern, again, like a large Picasso or a Chagall or a Basquiat or Warhol will obviously take more space and also more precaution, more people to move around when uh, comics is really something that we can easily uh, exhibit and move. So in that sense it is different pradels also remarked that comic book collection is a niche activity in france in belgium in holland in germany in switzerland you have a lot of collectors but not only you know spain portugal uh, uk for sure are all countries where you find collectors but again it is a bit of a niche especially at this level so we are still exploring and we have a lot to discover but i'm specifically mentioning about europe for now because we know that you have a lot of us collectors as well and asian collectors on comics but who are more probably targeting comics from their country from their continents herge's comics continue to remain popular not just as christies but at other auction houses as well where they have set new price records for example in a 2016 auction at art curial in paris a drawing from the book explorers of the moon was sold for 1.55 million euros dhananjay khadilkar rfi paris rfi's pick of the month Christelle et Kimja What I have to tell you is important Sabe o sol do Recife, o aroma do mangue, yo 
RFI. <laughs> this is Paris Live. You're listening to Radio France International. And uh, I'm joined in the studio by RFI's Paul Myers. Uh, we're going to have a look at some sports, which is probably infected somewhat by coronavirus, Paul. Well, the problem is, of course, that there is uh, not much going on. Mm. And uh, what is going on is usually inflected, as you say, by the uh, coronavirus. Um, but... Um, Strangely enough, we've got something from the world of motorcycle racing. Oh. Um, strangely enough, it's a, a good old-fashioned ban for doping. It's um, the MotoGP rider, Andrea Iannone. Now, he's failed a drugs, a drugs test, and uh, he was provisionally suspended uh, last December after testing positive for a banned anaplastic. I should say anabolic steroid at the Malaysian Grand Prix. But um, his ban is backdated to the date of his original suspension, meaning he'll be unable to compete uh, again until um, June 2021. Mm. I suppose this then brings into image of the weather, because there is no motor racing at the moment, the first five races of mm. the season have been cancelled, whether the ban... When there's if nothing it happening, is any it, if it purpose. serves any purpose, and should the ban be sort of yeah. pushed back or what? Yeah, what do yeah. you do in yeah, that case? Yeah, what do you it's, do in these yeah. kind of cases? It should be interesting, but it, it, technically, he's going to miss uh, the rest of the 2020 MotoGP season, as well as the opening rounds of next year. And um, we'll just go back to the story which I mentioned earlier about uh, Papa Diouf, uh, the former president of. Uh, Olympic Marseille. He died of uh, coronavirus out in Senegal, yes. where he was the first case in that country. Um, tributes have been pouring in for him, uh, led by the president of Senegal, Macky Soal, who called him a great figure of sport. Now, Diouf had a uh, Senegalese and French citizenship. Um, he went from journalism into sports management. And then uh, first he was an agent and then he joined uh, Olympic Marseille as a general manager. And uh, he rose to become the club president in 2005. And it was a, a strange appointment, really, because he had actually intended to go into the military oh. to follow in the footsteps of his father. But uh, that all took a bit of a different course uh, when he was a student. He was at Sciences Po in Paris. He uh, didn't complete that course, went down to Marseille, became a journalist <laughs> and got interested in sports. And then he became an agent. And then obviously the management side All of right. things really interested him. And he rose to become, at that time, the first black president of a major European mm. club. And he did speak during his life about just how odd that was um and he realized that there wasn't that much diversity um in the upper echelons of club management mm. and mm. he he did say it was very easy to spot it because it was obvious yeah. when you go to these um well diversity in the teams perhaps but not in the upper as you say the upper echelons yeah and the management um, so he so he stayed there for four years and then he left. And um, actually, during during the time, he had a roster of fantastic players on his yeah. books as a uh, as a 
as an agent. He had Didier Drogba, who, of course, went on to fame at, at Chelsea, the Ivorian. And he had Marseille Desai, he had Basil Boli, mm, he had uh, William, Ga- William mm. Gallas. Um, so he wasn't bad, obviously, as an agent. And he was, let's say, fairly successful mm. as a club president as well. And um, one of uh, his most uh, significant appointments was uh, at Marseille was the recruitment of Didier Deschamps as the coach of the first team. Now, Deschamps, as you may or may not know, is the manager of the France national team. And actually, he said he was really saddened by news of the death. He described Juf as a man of conviction, a man of wit and passion for the game and all those involved in it. And uh, mm. so that's uh, Didier Deschamps play, uh, paying tribute to Papa Diouf, who um, has died, sadly, of the coronavirus in Senegal, and he's um, been registered there as the first death mm. from the virus in that country. Okay. So... Um what else do we have? Uh, do we do we do we have any news of the uh, Tour de France? <laughs> no, I want to know. I saw something a headline like secrecy and something. We've we've spoken about this we, before. We the spoke Tour about de France, this last week about the Tour de France. They still haven't decided they, what they, they want to do. They're still saying that the secrecy is surrounding the <laughs> ultimate decision um, okay. to to actually run the Tour de France. But um, let's face it; it's supposed to be in July. If you've got Wimbledon on the verge of being cancelled, which is in late June. To July, so it's, we don't have news on that either. We, Wimbledon, we're waiting we're for waiting that. With but um, breath. from mm. what we're hearing, it's it's looking very likely that Wimbledon, the third Grand Slam of the season, will be cancelled. It won't be uh, played at all, not even behind closed doors. Mm. They're not going to even try to move it to later in the year, like the French Open did much to the chagrin of the tennis authorities Mm. Um, the players unions are not at all happy about the french uh, tennis federation moving it from june up until september Mm. and without consulting anybody and then of course that just crushes all the other tournaments which are taking place Mm. at that time so wimbledon unlikely to try and do that they're going to just say it's not on this year Mm. we can't predict what the situation will be with the coronavirus in six weeks or eight weeks, or actually, let's face it, even in 12 weeks. Mm. Um, So we'll just have to call it a day for this year and um, look forward to next year. Um, I've been speaking to um, the tennis uh, correspondent at The Guardian, actually, just over this one, and he's been saying um, it's an intriguing prospect for some of the, let's say, elderly players, (laughs) such as um, Roger Federer. And Serena Williams. Several and months say, can make it, a big difference a big in difference. a career. And of course, mm. you know, well, Federer will be 38 next year, and Serena will be the same age. Yeah. Would this Wimbledon have been their last hurrah? Will they really have it in them to um, be at Wimbledon in 2021, physically, mm. mentally? And of course, it could well be that the All England Lawn Tennis Club won't see them. On the on the courts again because of just one of those things, yeah. you know, the, a, a a huge pandemic, and um, of course age. It's uh, it's a fascinating prospect to see what could happen to, you know, two of the greatest yeah. grass court players. Mm. Well, all right. Well, we'll keep our eyes uh, riveted on the sports world over the next uh, coming days and weeks to find out what happens with all those events. Thank you very much to Paul Myers. Well, 
with a very energetic uh, vibe here to wrap up Paris Live for today. We're going to leave you with a song by the group Alcazar. This is the song Ganoui. And uh, we'd like to thank you for listening and supporting Paris Live on Radio France International in these uh, coronavirus times that are, as you know, difficult because of the lockdown. But thank you for your support and your messages on social media. Uh, and we will continue to broadcast uh, as best we can Mondays to Fridays at 1300 hours GMT. And anything else, you can find it online, rfienglish.com. So thank you very much for tuning in today and we'll catch you at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye. Je le gueule